0: All right, well, good evening, everyone, and uh, thank you for being here, and thank you for being here. Even though you're not here, you're there. The only thing that could be better is if we were all in the air, right, with the Lord any time now, right? I think so. That's good. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to the book of Thessalonians, And we are in the first chapter, and we will be reading verses 6 through 10. If you will stand with me in honor of God's word. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is God's word. You may be seated. Mark Twain. said, there is nothing worse than a good example. Do you guys remember in school when they used to grade on a curve? Anybody here during that time? I don't think they do that anymore. At least I never did it in my career as a teacher. But when you grade on a curve, you have a certain percentage of students you expect to get an A, a certain percentage to get a B, a certain percentage to get a C, and a D, and to fail. And as long as the top runners just sort of, you know, stayed within reason, (laughs) you had a good chance if you were a mediocre student like um, (coughs) myself, of being able to pull off maybe a D plus or a C, okay? Well, you hated that guy or that girl who not only aced the test, but also got all of the extra credit points right too. So their ending percentage on the test was hundred and ten percent and that just totally messed up the curve. There's nothing worse than a good example. We had a, a young man that was part of our ministry, Jason, a lot of you guys remember him. He was a post office worker and his work ethic was modeled after the scriptures and prompted by the Holy Spirit and uh, he was so good and so efficient that the other postal workers were giving him a really hard time asking him, could you just knock it off, right? You're making us all look bad. Well, such is the life of a Christian in these last days. If The believer is living in the expectancy and the joy of Christ's second coming, they will be exemplary. They will be leading the charge at wherever they work. In our passage tonight, through the lives of the Thessalonians, Paul teaches us a couple of things. He teaches us what kind of people we are to be in these days of political and social unrest, and what kind of people we are to be in these days of a pandemic. Paul would say that we are to be an exemplary, enthusiastic, and expectant people. Exemplary, enthusiastic, and expectant. We are to be those whose lives modeled, I'm sorry, We are to be those who live modeled lives. That's what I was trying to say. Lives marked by joy because of the great expectation we hold of the second coming of Christ. Our lives should be marked by joy. I can't remember who it was. I think it was Vance Havner that said, Joy is the calling card of the Christian. As you know, the second coming is The basic theme of this book, each chapter relates Christ's return to a basic Christian truth. And in this chapter, we see that Christ's coming is the blessed hope of the saved. While the lost are blindly worshiping and trusting in their idols, the saved are serving the living God and rejoicing in the living hope that Christ will come again, to which our hearts cry out, Maranatha. Although we don't look at those who are lost and say, well, na 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 na, I got it, you don't. No, we don't do that. We, we seek to be busy about God's work, occupying and seeking to preach the gospel and to win as many to Christ as will come. And we do so with, with hearts that are heavy if they choose not to. So let's look at verses six and seven and see the exemplary people. Verse six, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you see the oxymoron already, affliction and joy, affliction and joy. You don't associate those two concepts together. He starts off by telling them that they became followers of us. And he means talking about himself, Paul and Silas, And Timothy, he says, you became followers of us and of the Lord. The word follower there is mimetes. It means to mimic or to emulate. Uh, To to emulate is to imitate and model yourself after someone. The Thessalonians had become third generation mimics of Christ. They modeled their lives after Christ. Christ is the original life to be imitated. Paul is the second in 1 Corinthians 4.16. He says, I urge you, meaning all of us, to imitate him. Because why? He was imitating Christ. I always thought that was a pretty um, heady thing to say, you know, egotistical. You know, wow, Paul, you think you're all that in a bag of chips, don't you? But the truth is, if you look at his life and what he suffered for the sake of Christ and how he did it with such joy and patience, then you, he, he's got credibility. He, he's got street cred, as they say. And then the Thessalonians are the third generation of mimics of Christ. Specifically, they emulated Jesus and Paul in the way they endured affliction. That is really the, the, the proving stone, if you will, or the thing that that purifies you in your faith, it's the thing that makes you strong in Christ. An ancient commentator by the name of Ambrosiaster, Ambrosiaster, said those who eager to believe suffer insults and injuries from their fellows are precisely those who may be called imitators of the apostles and of the Lord himself. He suffered the same things from the Jews as did the apostles who endured persecution as they pursued their faith in God. We've been told by Paul that those who desire to live godly, doesn't even matter if you are living godly, if you just desire to live godly, you will suffer persecution. And Jesus made it very plain. He didn't hide the fact that, you know, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. It's just part and parcel of the package of following Christ. Now, concerning the Thessalonians, the greater percentage of Christians were converts from Gentile backgrounds, not Jewish backgrounds. And they would face an even greater hostility because to the pagan, if you will, or the Gentile, It's like, how could you turn your back on your family? How could you reject your family's ancestors? Because that's what you were doing by turning to Christ, the one and only true God. Matter of fact, they had a word for you. You were called an atheist, an atheist. We think of an atheist as a person who doesn't believe in any God at all. They thought an atheist was one that only believed in one God versus the polytheism that they were worshiping and that they they had many, many gods, plus worshiping their ancestors. And it was really rooted deep inside of the grain of the character of the Gentile. Uh, In a typical home, they would get up in the morning and they would gather around the hearth where the fire was, and they would hold hands and they would pray to their ancestors. And they would pray for protection. They would pray for prosperity and and for the ancestors to look out for them. And then depending on what God they worship, and there were many gods, they would offer sacrifices to this God, sacrifices such as food sacrifices, not human sacrifices or blood sacrifices. But they would offer food sacrifices to get on their good side. And if they had a a, a family in another Part of the town that was giving them a bad time, they would sort of ask their God to go take care of them, if you know what I mean. Very different than coming and believing and trusting in the one true and living God. Very, very different. And so you can see that in their minds, it's like, I don't get it. Well, we see that today, even today, when someone will come to Christ, that their parents and their loved ones just won't understand them. You know, they they would rather have the person that was in the drugged out, drunken state because they understood that rather than someone who has gone off the deep end religiously and believing in Jesus. Um, So they endured affliction. Now the word for affliction here, um, outside of the Bible, usually denotes literal pressure and that of a severe kind. Uh, the corresponding verb, for example, was used of pressing grapes in wine making until they burst asunder. And so metaphorically, it came to mean very great trouble. You ever feel your life was just so full of stress, like someone was just stepping on your head, and it's about ready to pop like a grape if it gets any worse? Well, that's what this word, affliction, is supposed to characterize or picture. And pretty soon they would be driven underground and they would be martyred for their faith. Um, It's probably just a matter of five years or so before Nero's going to take the throne and then he's going to have open season on the Christians there. But in the face of all that, they're maintaining the joy of the Holy Spirit. They have joy in the midst of their suffering. This was evidence of the reality of their salvation, which included the indwelling Holy Spirit. Another ancient commentator of the Bible, Chrysostom, or Chrysostom, said it's possible for one who suffers to experience pleasure when he is being beaten and suffers for Christ's sake. Does that kind of twist your mind around a little bit? You gotta remember when this was written, it's like 300 A.D., okay? So I don't think when he says pleasure, it means the same thing as it means today. Okay, he says, For such is the joy of the Spirit. They have afflicted you, he says, and persecuted you, but the Spirit did not forsake you, even in those circumstances. Now, interestingly enough, he died on a forced march when he was 60 years old. Uh, they, they kept him low-fed and highly walking every day at a fast pace until he just collapsed, and then he died. He died walking. His last words were, Glory be to God for all things. Amen. If you remember the movie The Hiding Place, right? The story of Corrie ten Boom and Betsy ten Boom. Corey, a strong believer herself, thought her sister Betsy was outside her mind as she began to pray for her German persecutors. And when she heard German planes flying overhead, going on their bombing missions, she prayed for those pilots, for their safety, that they would come home to their families. And it was like, Betsy, what is wrong with you? And when they would stand out in the yard at attention for hours at a time, she'd just be looking around and all of a sudden she would say, oh, look at that, that's a bird. Father, thank you so much. And she had this big old smile on her face. You hate people like that, right? There, there's nothing worse than a good example. Even in the midst of affliction and suffering, there can be joy. Paul and Silas, perfect example. Before coming to Thessalonica, Paul and Silas were imprisoned and they had been beaten with lictor rods before they were placed in prison. These prisons were not sanitary. They were, well, it was a mess and they were usually too small for the people who were put in there. And what do you find them doing at midnight? singing praise, worshiping God despite the change, chains and suffering. They're examples of the same spirit to the Thessalonian Christians. Now do you know why they have joy? Do you understand why? It's not magical. Joy is always related to your relationship. And how strong your relationship is with the God you love. The better you know him, the deeper you have climbed or pressed into him, the greater joy and confidence you will have. Because when you go through one of those kind of times, Romans 8.38 becomes so precious to you. Even it has become precious to y'all. Nothing can separate you from God. Nothing can separate you from his love. So it's all the more reason to be joyful. Anyway, for that reason, joy in the face of adversity. Verse 7, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Because of the evidence of the reality of their salvation including the joy they experienced in the face of the adversity, they became examples. The Greek word is used to describe a seal that marked wax or a stamp that minted coins. If you have a coin in your pocket and you have a quarter, you take out the quarter, whose image is stamped into that coin? I guess George Washington, isn't it? Exactly. That's what the word example means. In other words, you have the Lord's mark on you. The idea is leaving your mark. You do something important that has a lasting effect or makes a lasting impression. Paul commended the Thessalonians for being model believers because they had left their mark on others. How about you? Are you leaving a mark on other people? I don't mean literally. I mean, are you impressing them in such a way that glorifies your God and makes them get the tasties for Jesus? That's what we should be doing. Paul is commending the Thessalonians for being model believers. Now, first of all, Paul was an example to the Thessalonian Christians. Then they became examples to others. And that's exactly how the work of God should happen. Your life should so glorify God that you leave your mark on another life. And it should carry on and on and on. As Christians, we always need others who will show us how to follow Jesus beyond the need of hearing about how to follow him. It's one thing to have someone sit in the church and listen to how they should be following how they can follow Christ than to rub elbows with you and learn that this is it in reality, okay? They show, you show them how to follow instead of just listening. That's what authentic discipleship does. Every Christian should be involved in discipleship. You should be being discipled by an older, mature Christian, and you should be discipling someone. All right, let's go to verse 8 and look at the enthusiasm. He says, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Travelers usually carried the news with them. And other churches may have heard of the Thessalonians through the Philippian messengers, you know, uh, from Macedonia also, who brought Paul his financial support or maybe some other Jewish or Christian travelers. Anyway, the church was getting a reputation. I remember back in the 60s when Calvary Chapel was just booming, that the reputation of that church was going throughout the whole nation. And and the news that they were carrying was some news. It says that it was sounding forth. That sounding forth means a loud ringing sound as of a trumpet blast. The idea is to reverberate. You ever heard that word, reverberate? Yeah? Well, I'm gonna go show you an example of reverberation. All right. If you're a musician or especially a guitar player, you like reverb because it makes a tasty sound. I wanna play for you just two chords. Make this real fast, real simple. Okay? (laughs) That is a chord played without reverb on it, okay? When, the, when this, which causes the strings to, to vibrate, is stopped, the sound stops, right? You get that. All right, here's reverb. It continues to go on, right? Get the idea? The testimony of the Christians in Thessalonica was ringing out like reverb. And it was spreading even all over the world, as Paul says. What kind of church was that? What kind of church would be so Christ-like, so full of love, filled with the Holy Spirit winning souls to Christ doing multiple good deeds all the time that it would get that kind of a rep that's the church that I want to be involved in the good work the Lord did among the Thessalonians became the reverb or the continuous sound known all over the region and everyone was talking about the changes in their life. That's what made the big difference is to see the change. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, everybody asked, why, what has happened to these Thessalonians? These people have broken their idols, they worship the one God, they trust in Jesus, They're no longer drunken, dishonest, impure, or contentious. Now, Thessalonica was um, a cosmopolitan trading city, all right? And the good news would go forth into every place on the earth because a lot of the traders would go there, then they'd go back home and then tell about this church and what they'd seen and the people and how they were acting. So there are two ideas here that Paul puts together. First he says, the word of the Lord sounded forth, and then he says, their faith toward God has gone out. These are two aspects of sharing the gospel, if we're gonna do it effectively. First, they need a message to spread. That would be what? The word of the Lord, right? And that message first needs to impact their own lives. Before you can really give, you need to have received. And before you can really teach it, you've got to really know it. You can't just speak what you haven't experienced. Secondly, they need the faith to go out so that their faith toward God goes out into all the world. So from their own testimonies, from their own travels and from the the testimony of the people who saw the changes themselves, the word goes out. Now, have you ever known somebody, maybe you're one of those somebody's whose life was so radically one way before you got saved that it was radically different after you got saved and it was one of those wow moments? That was my father. That was my father. I won't go into the bad part, but I will tell you that after he got saved, I didn't recognize him. Not physically. I didn't recognize his character. I came home when we were living in South Phoenix, and uh, I came home and he was there, his car was in the driveway, and he was on the floor on all hands and knees carrying my daughter around on his back. That wasn't my dad. I don't know who that was. That was an imposter. What have you done, my dad? Where is he? But there was a radical change in his character. And that was testimony of the reality of the power of the gospel of God. That is testimony that the filling of the Holy Spirit has affected this man. Adam Clark says, The mere preaching of the gospel has done much to convince and convert sinners. But the lives of sincere followers of Christ as illustrative of the truth of these doctrines have done much more. Charles Spurgeon, everybody talked of what had taken place among these converted people. Oh, for conversions, plentiful, clear, singular, and manifest, that so the word of God may sound out, our converts are our best advertisements and arguments. So true and you've heard it said right you are the only bible some people will ever read looking at your life now while these saints were waiting for the trumpet to blow to call them home because that's what this this book and the second letter is all about they were trumpeting the gospel loud and clear to all their lost friends now the question is how about us what are we doing All right, let's go to verse 9 and 10 and look at the expectation. The expectation. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. Now, this is talking about all those who had observed the lives of the Thessalonians. And they themselves are declaring... What manner of entry, meaning the reception that we had by you, did you accept or reject the gospel that we preached? And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God? When the Thessalonians received the word of God from Paul, they responded to it by leaving their idols and they gave themselves to serve the living and true God. Now, A couple things here when we come to Christ there should be a difference in our lives there should be a repentance a changing in our behaviors and a lot of people don't want to come to Christ for that very reason they figure they're gonna have to change their lifestyle so they would rather not and then there are others who do come to Christ and somehow they've gotten the idea that Christ is cool with a lifestyle that was damning them to hell before but now he's okay with that, and that's not true. But the second thing is, um, they turned to the true and the living God, and they served Him and Him only. Now, in the day when this was written, that was just weird, because you don't serve gods. Gods are not something you serve. There's something you sacrifice to, or there's something that you worship, but you don't serve them. One commentator uh, said, no Greek or Roman could take in the idea of serving a god. There was no room for it in his religion. His conception of the gods did not admit of it. If life was to be a moral service rendered to God, it must be to a god quite different from any to whom he was introduced by his ancestral worship. And that's why in Acts 17, 6, the Thessalonians would say, these men, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, who have turned the world upside down, have come here too. They were challenging their worldview. We see that happening today, do we not? Our worldview being totally put upside down, that which is good is declared as wrong, and that which is wrong now is declared as right. Well, in the eyes of these people... In Macedonia, that's exactly what it was like to them. They're turning everything upside down. Now that word turned, the word turned in um, verse nine, how you turned to God from idols, that word turn is repentance. Repentance. Meten no. Eo, Meta noeo. Means this to think differently repentance is about thinking differently to reconsider and to change your mind that's what certain groups in our culture are trying to do with all of us right now about a lot of things and it isn't going to be just an intellectual argument we're going to have it's going to be forced down our throats but here, it was a matter of preaching the gospel and letting the Holy Spirit do the work and letting the ideas play out in the marketplace. And it changed their mind. Matthew 3.1, Jesus said, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, noel. repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Think differently, guys. Reconsider. Change your mind. In Luke 13, 3, Jesus said, I tell you, no, but unless you meta metanoel, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then Acts 3, 19, metanoel, repent, change your mind, think differently, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Well, repent from what? Repent that your manner of life, that you're thinking that your manner of life is acceptable to God and that it doesn't matter how you live or what you believe. Think differently. There's one true and living God who is your creator who died and shed his blood for your sins. If you do that, then the natural byproduct will be turning away from sin. Salvation involves a person's turning from sin and from trusting in false gods to Christ. I've said this many times, change your mind so God can change your heart and transform your life. Change your mind, think his thoughts, agree with him on this, then he'll change your heart and he'll transform your life. Okay, the Thessalonians changed their minds about their idol worship and turned to serve the true and living God. And, verse 10, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the recurring theme in the Thessalonian letters. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. Start at verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. All right? Then look chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, for the Lord himself will ascend... From heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And then, verse 18, comfort one another with these words. Look at chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Starting at Verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but we worked in labor night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will work. You know what? I'm not sure I'm in the right place. (laughs) All right. Well, I'll tell you what. All right. Forgive me. It's not what I thought it was. Acts one eleven says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, so will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Second Timothy four eight, you can turn there. Second Timothy four eight. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. It's right after the first and second Timothy. Titus. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good work. These passages are indicating to us that there is an immediacy expected. We're expecting Jesus to come back at any moment, any second. And I hear critics say, but it's been over 2,000 years when you're going to take a hint, right? Well, a couple things to that, and you guys know what the argument is. First of all, to God thousand years is as one day, so it's only only been two days since he's been gone. And secondly, we're in pretty good company. When you look at, I mean, the Bible is pretty clear in what it says. It, it teaches that he is coming back. And we are to live in the, the expectation that he is coming back even now. But so did John Wesley and D.L. Moody and Charles Spurgeon and Billy Graham and Chuck Smith among others, and including Paul the Apostle himself, that Jesus' return is imminent. Charles Spurgeon says, This is a high mark of grace. When the Christian expects his Lord to come and lives like one that expects him every moment, moment, if you and I knew tonight that the Lord would come before this service was over, In what state of heart should we sit in these pews? In that state of heart we ought to be. Can you think about that just for a second? What if you knew that you knew that you knew that within the next three minutes the Lord was going to return? I mean, you knew it, right? You came here, you knew it was going to happen at 8 o'clock, and you're here and you're waiting. What mindset would you be in? Would you be excited? Wouldn't it be great to know that you're going to go? Remember when you first went to Disneyland? That was the most exciting moment in my life. And I knew, I knew. We got to the gate, and I saw the gate, and I knew we were going to go inside. I'm going to see Dumbo and Mickey and Goofy and all those guys, and I was just all, all excited. What if you knew that before you get home tonight, the Lord is coming back? Well, Spurgeon gives us some good advice. In that state of heart, we ought to be in that state of heart. If there's one thing that should be eagerly anticipated, is Jesus' return. It's the next event on God's calendar, Okay, in which we will meet him in the air, and then we'll follow seven years of tribulation on the earth, and then after that, Christ and the church will return and usher in a thousand year reign of Christ. All right. That's the real deal, Lucille. Let's all stand.